Hello and welcome to episode 145 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, we hear from Sarah Jane Morris, singer, songwriter, actress who shares stories of Red Wedge and a song gifted to her by Paul Weller. Sarah Jane has been sharing her musical talents with us for over 40 years now, an artist who straddles rock, blues, jazz and soul and is in possession of a stunning four octave vocal range that will blow your mind. Now, you may well know her from her association with the Communards in the mid-80s or 16 solo albums later, pop stardom on the continent, a diverse set of musical collaborations on record, on film and on stage, and she continues to steer her unorthodox career to greater heights. We'll dig into her connections with Paul Weller, which date back to the mid-80s when she was part of the Communards and she joined the Red Wedge tour. As you'll hear, 1986 was a pretty incredible year for her with that worldwide smash hit of Don't Leave Me This Way as well. In the early 90s, Mr. Weller handed her a tune called Leaves Around the Door, which she quickly added to her live set list, including for a performance that was captured on her Blue Valentine Live, a Ronnie Scott's album. And you may well recognise that song. We'll dig into the story in the podcast. And there's another lovely Weller connection as well. In 2021, she recorded a brand new album called Let the Music Play, which featured a stunning cover of You're the Best Thing by the Style Council. All these stories and so much more in this episode of the podcast. Let's get into it. Sarah J. Morris, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you, not least because your music crosses so many different genres. So getting inside your head about what you love and what you've experienced throughout your career is going to be really exciting. I'm really looking forward to digging into this career of what, over 40 years now? 44 years. I mean, that 44 years. Wow. I mean, and I bet that's flown by in a, in a no, blink of an yeah, eye, right? It's, it's a bit scary. <laughs> so looking forward to digging into all that, but also um, your lovely connections with Mr. Weller as well. But I want to kick off, first of all, with this astonishing vocal range of yours. Where does this come from? Is this something that you've always had? Is it something you have to really work at? I have to be honest with you. I have never had a music lesson in my life. So I am totally untrained. It's just an accident that happened, me being a singer. You know, I tried, I went to drama school when my, my dad, when I was 17, went to prison. We were a big family. It meant there was no home. Uh, it totally ripped the family apart. And um, he went to prison. I joined Amnesty International because I wanted to find out about other families who'd lost somebody important to them to prison for something they believed in. And um, that was my beginning of my politicization, I, I, I reckon. But I left school halfway through because we were suddenly this family of seven children that were ostracized by, you know, we were in a normal comprehensive school that did not ha know how to deal with a family whose father was in prison. So we kind of, uh, we, we felt like we had been, we were the guilty party and uh, we were absolutely out on our own. And I had a mini breakdown. And uh, so I left school halfway through my A-levels. And about three or four months after that, I thought, God, I've got to carry on with my life. I've got to study something. So I went to the local tech and I was too nervous at this point to actually go in and sign on for any course. I didn't really know. You know, I was coming up in, in a rash all over anytime anybody spoke to me. I was I was in a bad way. Yeah, of course. And carrying all of this of dad's guilt, I suppose, you know, and um Anyway, I went round the back of the, the college just to kind of 
deep breathe, panic, you know, stop the panic so that I could go in. And there was this guy leaning against the wall, smoking a cigarette. And there were t- two big doors that were open, but it was black behind. So it was sort of no lights on in whatever this building was. And he said, what are you doing? And I happened to say, I'm trying to calm down because I've got to go and sign on and start a course. And I, he must have been nice to me because I told him my life story. And he said to me, well, this is the drama department. This is the first theatre and education college in the country or this particular department. I teach Brechtian theatre. You've been alienated. You need to be here. I never had to go around and sign on. I went in through the back door and he became like a surrogate dad. And Ben Elton was on this course. He was the year above me. And because it was the first course of its kind in the country, there were all sorts of really odd people from around the country that had come there. (laughs) But I, of course, didn't cost me because I was a local girl. So it kind of got me into acting. Ceramics was very good for me, too. I was an art student as well. And I got into both Central School of Speech and Drama and also the Loughborough College of Art. And I didn't know which one to do, but I would have got full grant because, you know, we were a poor family. And those were the days where you got full grants. So I went to see my dad, who at this point had moved from a top security prison to an open prison. Because this is two years on. And I went to see him and, and it's kind of like you see in porridge, you know, as a family, you've got your own table. You're all sitting around. It's like a cafe. And I sat down and my question to him was, which course should I do? And he literally lifted up from under the table and put on the table something that looked like a drawstring leather bag. And it was made from stoneware clay, no glazes, but that's what he was working on. I remember thinking, OK, drama school. Because he was a very competitive man and he was already that good. So I went to drama school, but I had a chip on my shoulder because I had a dad in prison and everyone else seemed to have, you know, mummy or daddy in the business. I was there with Kristen Scott Thomas, French and Saunders, Rupert Everett, Julian Sands, who was a boyfriend for a while and who I don't know if you've noticed in the news, he went missing. Yes, on the, on a hike in um, California, he went right? On the day of my new knee, because I heard from all my friends in LA, because one of my friends is his is his agent. That so I knew all about that just at that point where I was having a knee replacement. But anyway, they were part of my couple of years at drama school. But I left with a chip on my shoulder before the end of the degree, thinking I'm going to bloody show them. I answered an ad in the stage and the melody maker for an Italian rock band that, that, that wanted a kind of Janis Joplin type singer. They'd got a deal with Atlantic Records. So uh, I and God knows how many other people auditioned. I auditioned about five times and I got the job and it was to go and live uh, in Florence and join this band. They were called WAP Avenue. I mean, what a dodgy <laughs> And that was because they didn't realise how dodgy it was. It was what Fifth Avenue was called in New York. Okay, all right, yeah. Gucci and whatever. But they didn't realise what a bad name this was. They eventually changed it to Panama. But anyway, I go off with my one-year cardboard passport. I'd never been abroad before. We were a poor family. And I wanted to just get the hell away. Dad was going to be coming out of prison because he was he got seven years, but I think he was coming out halfway through for good behavior. And by the way, he was for his his first year, he was in Winston Green. Um and he served the Birmingham Six T on Good Behavior, Good Behavior. So that was that was his company. And and I remember because he want he apparently always wanted to be a musician, but I didn't know that. And until he was in prison. And so I bought him, I got to know this elderly couple and he ran a music shop and I used to go and have a drink in the pub. And I think they they kind of took me on board. They knew we were a dysfunctional family and we were struggling. 
And I explained to him that my dad had always wanted to play violin. And so I bought, I, I, I was, had a waitressing job. And so I gradually saved up and bought this violin and took it along. But of course, they had to take it to pieces in the prison just in case I was smuggling in drugs. But he taught himself to play violin. And then when he came out, he taught himself to play cello. He he was from one of those families where you do what your parents want you to do. And his mum wanted him to be a doctor and his dad wanted him to be an architect. And he became both, but didn't really see any of them through properly. And he lived his life balanced on a knife edge between right and wrong. And... Hence, the wrong, the, the wrong took over. For yeah, the wrong caught up with him, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but he, he sounded because he came from quite a rich family who we never knew because he married my mum who was working class. And so we were written out of the family. But, um, they made a documentary about my mum at this point. And I think that's another reason I wanted to get the hell out about what it was like to be the wife and the mother of so many kids, but the wife of someone in prison and how you coped. Because of course she'd had her own kind of breakdown, you know, and, and she, she, she really struggled. You know, she had to make us all wards of court to stop the social services taking them away. There was a baby involved. You know, we were one a year, but you know, there was a big gap and there was a baby. So she really had struggled. They were making a documentary about her. And I didn't want to, at this point, it was like, oh, it's all coming back to haunt me. I'm carrying it still. So I think that was another reason why I went to Italy with my one year cardboard passport. Now, this band, at the point I joined them, it was kind of a rock blues band. And then it all, it, it changed. They wanted to be something else. And so it didn't really tick the boxes for me. I didn't speak any Italian and I lived in a, and a part of, of, of a house that the drummer was living in, which was like a Bide Meinhof retreat outside of Florence, a place called Fiesole. He didn't speak any English and he was a hermit. He slept all day. <laughs> so I was stuck in the middle of nowhere with no access to a phone. I don't, you know, and no money and, and often no food. It was probably the slimmest part of my life. <laughs> And then on one of the first gigs, we, oh no, that's right. I was going, my part of the house went, it was going up spiral staircase and I tripped and damaged the knee. That was the very beginning of it. Gosh, really? Wow. And I tore all all the ligaments and I broke the synovial bag. And because we were about to start a tour where we were supporting this very famous Italian band singer at the time, they literally took me along to a private hospital. They plastered me from the ankle to the thigh. So I was in this very weird position where it's this straight leg. So I started to wear long ball gowns that covered the plaster. So nobody saw. And I... I mean, I was such a desperately trying to be different. I think I wore different shoes, you know, from each other. You know. <laughs> I wore Victorian underwear, which really was a first out in Italy. <laughs> you know, the long knickers and the little bodice and the beauty spots that floated and this stiff leg. And I developed something because, you know, I had to dance and move, but I got this stiff leg. I developed a really weird way of dancing, which then later I had to keep up because my knee would constantly dislocate. You know, it's taken me to being 64 to actually have the <laughs> knee replaced. Goodness but me. All that time ago, you know, age 20 or 21, how whatever age I was, it started. What was really funny was years ago, I wrote an album with the wonderful Callum McColl, who Callum and Neil McColl are the sons of Peggy Seeger and Ewan McColl. Callum was working with Ronan Keating. He was doing, he was producing him and he was kind of the MD. And he told me that while he was in Ireland doing a tour, this Irish singer had come up to him. And when he told her that he was working with me, she said, 
I absolutely love her dance. I copy it. I've I've worked hard to copy it. It's called it's called the constipated octopus. (laughs) So all of that came about me just accidentally falling into being a singer and getting the hell away from my dad and everything that was carried by him. I started off this music career and it Wow. Goodness yeah. me, the circumstances that leads you to that. And thank you. I mean, in a way for us as listeners, thank goodness they did. But I'm not sure I wanted to, would have wanted to go through all that pain and heartache and trouble and stuff to get there. But you know, we're, we're glad that you did that. But, you know, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, I'm guessing all of that stuff, because you've always been you know, clearly a big passion, as much as the music has been the social issues, the human rights. And we'll talk about Red Wedge in yeah. a bit, obviously, and the links to Mr. Weller. But that must come out of that background, presumably. It absolutely does. And I, and especially, you know, Gordon Valens, who was the head of this drama course, you know, being introduced to Brecht's lyrics, you know, that that is socialism. And that's what I picked up and moved with. And when I left that particular Italian band, I joined this 25-piece Brechtian big band and we did socialist music from around the world. You know, we made politics swing. We never got more than five pounds each for a gig. You know, you can imagine. And then that was good. That was good pay. But what we did do during that time was we teamed up with Kay Sutcliffe, who was a Kent Miner's wife, and she had written these great lyrics. And we did this arrangement with a happy end of this song, which is called Cold Not Dole, and it became the anthem of the minor strike. And actually, it was during that period that I met Jimmy. It was through the minor strike. It was an exhibition of photographs from it. And Jim, Richard had brought Jimmy along to meet me because they had just formed the Communards. They had just recorded their first single, You're My World, with London Records. And Richard joined Bronsky Beat right at the tail end during the minor strike. And they were very involved with that at the same time that I was. And I, in a, another band called The Republic, which was actually, I've done the, the order wrong. It was just before the happy end. I was in this 10-piece African-Caribbean Latin band. And that was probably the most political point of my career. Our first single, we were signed to Oval Records, Charlie Gillett's label. And our first single was called Don't Believe It's In Your Interest. It was it was anti the Malvinas War. And our second single was about the royal family. And I think you can imagine where that went. <laughs> this was the band that like too political for radio airplay. So absolutely. you're never you're never gonna make it on the on the bigger stage, right? Absolutely. Radio One just blanked us. But Capital Radio had just started. So at that point they hadn't established themselves to be the, the radio station that they became. So they played it a bit. And then we were we were the cover of NME. We were the band that was supposed to happen, you know, to make it. We packed out every gig. Granada TV did a documentary about us. We were that band, but we were too political. Yes, it was Thatcher's Britain. It wasn't going to happen. You know, I mean, Paul must have had that along the way where doors were closed to him because he's always been incredibly vocal and you know, right the way through. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I wonder if, I mean, the Style Council presumably was your kind of band with that love of jazz that you mentioned yes. and things as well. And, and, but so political, but it's funny when you, when you wrap them in that, that catchy pop lyric. And that's the best way to do it. That's what I, that's what I learned. I suppose by listening to people like him, that the be- rather than knock people over the head like that with your politics, you wrap it up with a beautiful melody and, it's there if people choose to yes. 
you know, take it to pieces and look at the lyrics later. But it's not the first thing they hear. First thing they hear is this incredibly catchy, beautiful tune. And it, t- it took me a long time to learn that properly because I wasn't really a, a songwriter back in those days. You know, I became it accidentally once again because I thought along the way I'd meet my modern day Bertolt Brecht or Tom Waits would write for me or someone like Paul Weller would continually write for me. You know, that's what I was hoping. And it didn't happen except Paul did write a song for me. So I had to become a songwriter, but I had to pick up as a songwriter where I'd left off with my A-level English. So, you know, here I am in my 30s writing songs that a 17-year-old would have written, you know? <laughs> and and there, a lot of those songs are on my early albums, but I right. had, have to go through that, you know, those that process, days. yeah. Yeah, before you become a decent songwriter. And it, it probably took me until I was about 50 because I had a lot to catch up on because I started writing late. Interesting. And now, okay. and now I'm proud of what I write. You know, I, I, I know I'm good at it. But back that, you know, I listened back. I remember I, I remember seeing an interview with Paul saying that he, he very rarely listened to anything from the past. It's what he's doing now. And I very rarely listen to something of my past, but occasionally it crops up and you think, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I thinking what was I doing but it's all part of the process now first connection with Paul were you into the jam was that a band that, that yeah, yeah, you're no, absolutely and and at school because I was a northern soul girl so I used to go to the Wigan Casino I used to say I was going to my friend Lorraine's and she said she was going to mine and we'd be on a bus to Wigan Casino we did the side shuffle and we had our Oxford bags and we had a Crombie coat which we'd bought from the bull ring because we were sort of suede heads I suppose you know yeah. by school you were either you know hell's angel or a <laughs> costume wise anyway and um so i liked the style i liked paul weller's style right from the beginning i liked how he looked my brother rode a lambretta you know my older brother you know that whole thing appealed to me and i liked what he was you know what he was writing about you know in the jam that was that was really interesting also the clash at the same kind of time that was really interesting i, I think one of my first gigs was opening up was it within a Le- it was a Leamington spa band and we got the gig of opening up for the specials in Coventry because we were in the Midlands at this point and I really got into the specials and that whole two-tone thing but I met him during the Red Wedge tour or during the whole lead up to the Red Wedge tour because we used to go to Solid Bond for our, a lot of our meetings and also when we were doing Artists Against Apartheid meetings you know that's where I would meet him and he was just a bit too cool you know I mean I was I was in <laughs> awe I was, I was in awe and I was I didn't have the confidence that I have now you know I hadn't worked it out I hadn't, I hadn't worked out who I was and I was there with Jimmy and Richard and it was before we'd had our hits you know and we were there with our drum machine and our backing tracks and doing our songs but you know Paul and Billy and Junior were in my eyes what were leading the Red Wedge tour and they were the ones that had the confidence to talk to the press along with Rhoda Dacker who was brilliant you know from well, she'd been with the Body Snatchers and, and then the, the specials, special AKA. And, you know, she's what's fantastic is she's still a friend of mine and she's still doing it, as is Pauline Black. I yeah. saw Rhoda last night, hilariously. Uh, she's been on the podcast. She's so lovely. I love her to bits. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Pauline, when she went solo, uh, supported us with the Communards, came on tour with us. So that was lovely to get to know her. And she and Rhoda have always been these very... A very confident, well outspoken political women, and I've always had great respect for them. But at that point, I wasn't outspoken. 
And so I was the one that was on the panel that listened. You know, Billy Bragg had worked out who he was from a very early age, as had Paul. So I was a bit in awe of them. But the tour was just, I mean, it was a highlight. It was a highlight of of my career. It was the first time I played to such big audiences. But I love my favourite part of each of the concerts, which was at the end where we would all sing Move On Up together. And that was just fantastic. You'd have madness on stage. You'd have... Uh, I think Morrissey came once. I remember Jimmy and and Richard just thinking it was so cool that Morrissey was in the next room. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's mad when you look at that ensemble for that. Yeah, yeah, for that that finale. It's just incredible, the talent on stage, right? It was was brilliant. And, you know, we really believed that that, that we could help make a difference to get the youth vote. You know, uh, that's where we were. They didn't necessarily deliver, but we had a fantastic tour. It was, for me, it was just fantastic. And then soon after that, we, you know, with the Communards, we, we formed this all-girl band. We went on tour and then we had our number one hit, you know. So for the rest of the year, we were at number one. It was a long, for six weeks at number one. So yeah, yeah. That, 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 was, that was great. So my life changed a bit then. Just before the Red Wedge tour, I'd gone to India on tour with the Annie Whitehead band where we played, we were supporting Ravi Shankar around India. Wow. Wow. That, that was literally two weeks before the Red Wedge tour. So it was like quite a year for me. That's incredible. Well, there's another Style Council connection actually, because Annie played on the, on Money Go Round. So the Style Council's second single. Right. That's right. And, um, and, and must, I must get her on the podcast because I just, not least because I want to talk about Robert Wyatt and, um, and Elvis Costello with her as well. But um, oh, yeah, what a talent. Everyone. And, and she got me involved in her Robert Wyatt project, Soup Songs. I eventually took over, it's probably about 2003, as one of the lead, there were three singers. We did a lot of those fantastic concerts, some of them that Robert came along to because they made a film and he'd come and do question and answer. And then we sung his songs. And that was just oh, so lovely. Cool. Wow. I met, I met a, a Robert originally with The Happy End because he loved The Happy End. And he and Jerry Damas, they both were big fans and they both nearly produced an album. But they didn't in the end. We just became friends. And oh, so- cool. I love that. Nice. So back to Red Wedge. So you mentioned Billy Bragg. Billy's been on the podcast. Anna Joy David, who was one of the was real... Incredible. She, yeah. she, she and Rhoda were the, were the women that I had on a pedestal. <laughs> and, and obviously so much of it was about the music as well. These incredible live gigs, but going around the country. The two characters as well who have come up quite a lot on the podcast, as you would expect. Kenny Wheeler and John Weller. So what are your memories about Kenny, first of all? Kenny, he kept us all... <laughs> In shape. <laughs> I mean, and, and John, you know, I didn't know him well. And I, I think because he was Paul's dad and manager, I was, I was probably a bit uh, in awe and nervous. So I don't have, you know, strong memories of them, but I do have Kenny and of, of him sorting us all out and being in charge of us. I do remember one of the, one of the gigs we did on the tour. I remember we, we stopped at a service station. I think Kenny thought we were all back on. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. This, and this and, and McDonald wasn't on the bus. <laughs> and he missed that ride. I don't know if he caught a very, very expensive taxi to get to the next place. <laughs> Do you know what happened? Somebody found him in a service station. That's still one of my favourite stories on this podcast. <laughs> In fact, I saw Mick Talbot was at the thing I was at last night and I mentioned that story to him again and just how much it was because Rhoda was there. I mentioned how much I love that story. It's hilarious. What a talent and what a lovely man. I mean, even back then, you know, when we were all in our 20s, he was just a really 
gentle, approachable guy. I mean, I, I became good friends at that point with Steve, Steve White, who was so young. There he was playing drums. You know, he wasn't long after out of school, you know. No, I mean, literally, like. <laughs> yeah. But we really hit it off. And so when he um, formed the Jazz Renegades, he got me to be the singer. And so I made an album with, with them. And also he got me involved and we, we co-wrote a couple of tracks for the Illicit Grooves, the Acid Jazz Illicit Grooves albums. Yeah, let's talk about those. So there was a track that was, so Freedom Samba was the album from Freedom Jazz Samba. Renegades, right? Yes. Which would have been, what, 1989, I think it was released. And this track, Do It The Hard Way. Do it the hard way, and it's easy sailing. Do it the hard way. And it's hard to see. That's what I remember. And I do, remember. Do I have to pay PRS now? Why <laughs> 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 get in touch? <laughs> but I remember what we did was we took Chet Baker's original solo, trumpet solo, and we doubled it up with sax and voice. And that was. That was fab. And then the Acid Jazz LP you mentioned, so that was A Certain Kind of Freedom. Steve and I wrote that together. I mean, I've met him a couple of times. I've interviewed him as part of the Style Council exhibition. I mean, he's such a talent. As somebody in the studio, as a musician that you're working with, what's that vibe like? How has it worked with a drummer like him? I love writing with drummers because they just have a different way of it. You, you usually it's you're finding a groove and you're writing to their groove. He is such a talented drummer, but he's a really down to earth person. But like me, he is so passionate about music that you're just in the zone. And it's just about how you make that music the best that it can possibly be. You know, Paul must be like that too. You know, Paul, you know, the blood that flows through his veins is, is music. And I heard about how many albums he's made, you know, over these last few years. It's like an album a year, you know, so he's constantly writing. I remember reading about um, Nick Cave, who I think is also a phenomenal talent as a singer-songwriter. And he says that he goes into his office and he writes every day. I'm not that kind of writer. I don't know if that's how Paul does it, but he turns out so much music, I can imagine it's almost a daily thing. For me, it's just if I read or hear about something that really interests me, it's usually the human story, then I'll research it and then I'll try, I'll put a little bit of, of my own journey in but it's, it's trying to tell this other person's story. So, for instance, I was listening to the radio, and I don't have a television, by the way. I haven't had a television for 14 years. Okay, so I, it presumes me to be stupid, and I'm not stupid. No, it's more like, what are you doing of an evening? <laughs> well, I read a lot. I do a lot of reading, and I, I, I sew a lot. You know, my husband's an artist. We read to each other a great deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're spending time with each other and having a nice... This is what, yeah, this, yeah. what marriage should be. <laughs> At least that is someone I actually love. His company got the most amazing brain and there's nothing that he can't talk about. And so I learn something every time I have a conversation with him. He doesn't learn from me, but I learn from him. <laughs> it's very one way, but still. It's very one way. He's crying out for a television. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, um, in this particular case, I heard on the radio, just before I went to sleep, it must have been late night, either Radio 3 or 4, but it was telling the story of the murders of the sex workers in um, Ipswich. And I, that just went into my dreams. And I woke up in the middle of the night and just wrote what came out. And I, 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 I think I, I, in my dreams, I became the, the last, the last person that was about to be murdered. And so I wrote this song called wow. a Comfort Zone, which I then went on to write with Antonio Forcioni musically for another album quite a few years later. That's kind of how it, it gets me. And because I'm an actress, lyrics are very, very important to me. 
because it's the script. And so I want to always be telling a story. And so if I've ever I cover a song, and I, I've recently covered one of Paul's songs, I did um, You're the Best Thing, because I did an album in lockdown with an Italian producer called Papik, where we decided he was in Rome, I was here, I got a decent mic. He asked me if we could do an album together where we chose songs from the 80s that meant something. And so I wanted to choose something that linked me to artists that I'd either worked with or really respected. So I I did a song by Prefab Sprout, one by Everything But The Girl. But the one I chose of Paul's was um, You're The Best Thing, because also it needed to fit this guy, this producer. He very much works in that kind of jazz, bossa nova, soft soul area. And I felt that that would kind of work. But Paul writes great lyrics. And, you know, all, in fact, all the songs I chose, I was able to, there's no point in covering a song unless you make it your own and you change it. And I could identify with all of these lyrics and as the actress, tell it, you know, sometimes the same story, but sometimes a different story. That's such an interesting insight into your way of working. And then we'll hear the music. People listening to this are fans of yours as well. We'll hear the, your music in a, in a different way, I think, from this conversation, which is yeah. which is wonderful. You mentioned the song that Paul wrote for you and gave to you, because this come, yeah. came some years later. So you, you'd obviously kept in touch, had you, in some yeah, way? Yeah, we did. We did. And, you know, like I said, I was I was in awe of him. I th- I've always thought that he was a great songwriter, but I love his voice as well. I love him as a singer. And he's... You know, there, are, there aren't many singers, particularly male, that you can just go... That's who they are. They've got their own sound. Mm. Sting's got his own sound. He doesn't sound like anyone else. And Paul, his vocal, it couldn't be anyone else. And, you know, I know that he's also had a link with John Martin. And and during, just before lockdown, I did an album where I, because I I needed a break, being the writer of the human story. I had written some really heavy stories. I wrote a song trying to imagine what it'd been like for my dad to be locked away for something he felt he was innocent of. And also trying to then link it with the Guildford Four, with the Birmingham Six, trying to, to picture that because one of my big fans was Mike Mansfield. He became a fan of mine in my later life. And he was the QC that helped free the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six. And my dad had this connection with the Birmingham Six having been in prison. But my first husband, who I was married to for 25 years, was in the Pogues. And of course, they were very much part of trying to help release the Guildford Four and became good friends with Jerry Conlon. You know, I'm, I remember meeting him many times at, con- at Pogues concerts, you know, being a Pogues wife. I was often in the dressing room with, with all of these people that come by and a lot, a lot of people that weren't coping with life. And he definitely wasn't, you know, I mean, that, that had just destroyed him. Understandably, yeah. I wrote this song and it was called Never Forget How to Dance. And it was, it was about what, what is it that you hold on to? And, and for me, it was, Never forget how to dance. So even in your cell, you you are still dancing, maybe on your own. But, you, you know, that's what you hold on to, to keep you sane. And I also wrote a song about David Cato, the gay Ugandan activist who was murdered for being gay. And about Robert Mugabe, who obviously started off a good guy and mm. ended up totally corrupt and destroying his country. I wrote a song about honour killings, which I called No Beyonce. So I, I wanted to think, well, how could I get people that would want to listen to this? So they might imagine this had something to do with Beyonce, but it was the lyrics were No Beyonce, No Shakira for you, No Fashion, No Boyfriends too. You'll do exactly what we tell you to do. And it was about a true story that I heard on the radio once again. So I was carrying all of this stuff because it doesn't leave you when you 
get involved in in some of these terrible stories. And so I found myself thinking, I don't want to write anything because it's too heavy. So let me find a body of work that I can visit and celebrate someone else. So I thought, well, I fell in love with John Martin when I was about 14, when he was on Old Grey Whistle Test and sang May You Never. And it was to me. And he had, he has his baritone voice and I have a baritone voice, which is quite rare for a woman. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I've got a very, very low voice. You know, I used to think that Nina Simone was low, but I'm a hell of a lot lower than her. You know, she's high. I can't really sing in her keys. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm more Mavis Staple. You know, yeah. I'm down at the bottom. So I thought there's some great songs there. So I chose them with my right-hand man, who's Tony Remy, who I, I shared for years with Annie Lennox because he was her main guitarist. And he is just a phenomenal guitarist. I knew I had to do a project like this because John was not just a great singer-songwriter, he was a great guitarist and and an innovator. And so I asked Tony if he'd be part of this. And so, you know, around his kitchen table, we literally chose the songs by listening, listening, listening. And then we changed them. And in some cases, because John often just repeated a verse. Uh, there was often not more than one verse. I dared to write another verse, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes I, ch- I changed it and the story. But anyway, we did it, I think, very respectfully. And then once I'd finished the album, Mark Thomas, the wonderful political comedian, who's a, a friend of mine and also a real fan of jazz, he said, why don't we turn this into a theatre music show? And so he, myself and my brother, Rod Morris, who's a photographer, filmmaker, we went around the country and we interviewed. I tried to get Paul, but he wasn't free. Interviewed musicians, family and friends of John Martin to, so that you actually got a whole other picture and side to him. And we used that within the show. And then we wrote a script and then we took it all around the country to quite big theatres. And I got an Arts Council grant. It's the first time I've ever got a grant. And um, we took it to the Edinburgh Festival and we won an Edinburgh first. And I was supposed to then do a big tour starting on the day that lockdown happened. Oh, what? And it never happened. Oh, what a shame. That's a, that sounds like a fabulous project. I mean, I love Mark Thomas. I, I interviewed him once when I was back in my radio days and he's just, I mean, he's such a clever man, but he was a fabulous oh, guest. He's a brilliant man. He's so funny. Yeah. Hilarious. So and he, boy, does he know how to combine that. Yeah. 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 And a great storyteller. He's wonderful. Fantastic storyteller. And I love his stories about his mum because he now cares for his mum, but his mum's the swearing 
the swearing <laughs> mum. <laughs> There's nothing she doesn't say. <laughs> I need to find a Paul Weller connection with him because he'd be a great guest. Yeah, he's um, well, he's bound to be a fan of. It must be a story though. Fan of music. So this was 2019. This was released, like you say, just before yeah. lockdown. The sweet little yeah. mystery. And I'll put all these details in the show notes. How did this link? Did this this is linked to the song that Paul gave you, or was this? No, did we go? No, we went off on a tangent. Yeah, we went off on a tangent as you do with people like me. <laughs> You can't remember who they are or where they are. <laughs> but what happened was a, a couple of years after the Red Wedge tour, and it was after, you know, my solo career. I think it was it was about the time I was pregnant with my son. So it's been and he's now 28. And I wanted to, you know, start to collect some good songs because at that point I still wasn't a songwriter. And so I asked Paul if there's any way he could write me a song. And he sent me this beautiful song. It was him playing it on. It was a demo of him singing it with guitar. And at that point, it was called Leaves Around the Door. What is interesting is when we were on that Red Wedge tour, I can remember being with Richard and sitting behind Paul and DC. And I have no idea whether their relationship was already happening before this tour. We witnessed a kiss and we remember thinking... My God, they're together. (laughs) And being so excited about this, thinking that this romance started there. But I have no idea of its history. I don't know whether it had started before that. But we thought we were witnessing the first kiss. (laughs) (laughs) We were really excited about that. And then this song that he wrote was obviously about the end of, of their relationship. And it's beautiful lyrics. And I was asked to sing at Ronnie Scott's. And I was support. I was support. It was the first time I'd sung there. I was the support to some American sax player who I actually can't remember the name of. I should do, but it's, I can't. And um, on the second morning, I had a phone call from Pete King, who owned Ronnie's. He and Ronnie Scott rang and he said, um, so, Jane, the week's sold out. It's not the headline act. It's you. All the Italians are in town. Because, of course, I, I had a big career in Italy, uh, which started off by me supporting Simply Red for my first album. I just had my first single, Me and Mrs. Jones, which was a cover, because I didn't change it to Me and Mr. Jones, Radio One Bandit. And it was the end of my career in England at that point. It was like right. nobody would touch me. I had been the darling of the left wing and the gay press until that point. But they knew I wasn't a lesbian, the gay press. They didn't touch the story. And uh, nobody except for Neil Spencer in The Observer. It was the only mention that I had been being pulled from the airwaves. So I didn't have the Frankie Goes to Hollywood big thing that takes you to number one. I had none of that. It was absolutely under the cover. And I think it was because at that point, Jimmy and Richard, and obviously myself and the rest of the communists, we were fighting for gay rights. At that point, it was just about acceptable to be gay. Nobody had come out as a lesbian at that point. And they were terrified that I was, you know, I was beauty spots, Victorian underwear, lipstick. Was I coming out of the closet on the back of this song? They weren't going to let me do that if that was the case. And so they were scared of it. Four years later, KD Lang came out in all her glory. I paved the way for her. I want her royalty. <laughs> I made it so much easier. <laughs> but that's what it was like in 1989. And so Simply Red, luckily at that point, when it looked like my career was over, and I was with a major label, Jive Records, they didn't know what to do about this. So Simply Red asked me to support them. And because I had red hair and my music wasn't too, I was more jazz than soul, but it was complementary to where they were. I, I toured all over Europe with them. And in Italy, they treated me like a double bill, not as a support act, as in the press. 
And I got I got given the freedom of the city of Verona. I played in the Verona arena. I was on all the TV shows. I was, I suppose I was the right age. I was just about 30, had a decent figure, all those sort of things that tick the boxes. So I was in all of the, you know, I was suddenly, all the fashion designers wanted to dress me. And then uh, the next year I won something called the San Remo Song Festival, which is where it's a bit like the Eurovision, is to celebrate Italian song, but they get international artists to come and sing an English version of the song. So because I knew what it was about, I said, I don't want to just do an English version. I'd like to co-write it. So I, I wrote these lyrics with a friend of mine, Cheryl. It's called Missing You. And it was the time of the Gulf War. And my husband was abroad in, they were on tour. And, and I remember thinking, will we ever see each other again? It was that scary time. So I wrote this song and it, it won the festival. But and Grace Jones was there. Grace Jones came second, but she thought that she won because no, they hadn't told her in, in English. So she pushed me out of the way. She had this guy behind her with a mink coat over his arms, tottering on high heels and with his tongue coming out, pushed me out. She didn't know who I was from Adam. And I never got to go on. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably a doorstop in, in her, her <laughs> company's office somewhere. But oh my God. That, so that was that moment of glory was taken away from me. But that kind of helped establish me in Italy, which is where I have continued to have a good career. And thank goodness for the Italians. You know, uh, I wouldn't have been able to continue doing what I'm doing had it not been for them. Because... However, once those doors are closed to you in England, mm. it's so very, very hard. And I never concentrated on England because of it. So it's only in the last five, ten years that I've started to try and get gigs here and build up my following here. Oh, really? I hadn't realised that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so the Italians sell out Ronnie Scott's for you. He said, can we record you? So they recorded one night and we were just working in that beautiful song that Paul had written for me. And um, it's on the Blue Valentine album. It's the, it's the, the only time we've recorded it is the live version, you know, and that album went on to be the biggest selling album for the Ronnie Scott's label. I managed to get them a deal in Italy because I was big in Italy. And so they were able to distribute, you know, distribution there. And that really helped. And it signed me to Irma Records, which I've continued to have a really good relationship with. They're a lovely independent label who picked up on the acid jazz scene years after the acid jazz scene here. So because I've been part of the acid jazz scene here, I was a good candidate for that. This gig had other songs written by people that we'd know, like Sade and um, Sting, you mentioned early on, yes. uh, even Jimi Hendrix. Yes. For goodness sake. And Tom yes. Waits, you mentioned there Tom as well. Waits. And Paul released it as a B-side. So people will know this song. Yes. Paul released it later. So it's a B-side of You Do Something To Me. And his version is called A Year Late is what he calls it. A Year Late, yes. You know, I, I just think that it's very interesting that I think I thought I thought I saw the first kiss. And then I sung the song about the end of, of that, that, that lovely relationship. I hadn't heard the song that way either. That's the thing. So I didn't know that was that wasn't my reading of it. So now I'm going to revisit that song and hear I, that in a different way. Yeah. Quite, I might be wrong. Paul might, you know, ring me up and say, nah, you got that wrong, girl. <laughs> and I haven't seen Paul for years, but I've, you know, carried on following him. And I think he's such a valuable songwriter, you know, I I think he's he's just one of our best singer-songwriters in this country. And I mean, that is such a beautiful song as well. And I love his version of it. And I, I love your version. And these lyrics, you know, some I've got, I've, I put the lyrics here because I wanted to read them. So I know that, you know, lyrics like you say mean so much to you. And yes. lines like something worn like a blanket thrown, your tender heart, your crystal spirit keeps me warm and safe from harm, wraps oh, around my shoulder. My shoulder. Oh. You know, it's, it's beautiful. The leaves around the door, the sunlight in the hall, the darkness when it falls. 
Baby, I want you more. I want you more. Yes. I can hear you just read the whole thing. <laughs> Perform the whole thing for me. That's a- I can remember the melody. Uh, something warm, like a blanket from your tender heart, your crystal spirit. It keeps me warm, safe from harm, wrapped around my shoulder. Uh, that's that's the first. Uh, one. <laughs> uh, a long time ago, it wasn't. I mean, we're talking nearly thirty years, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow, oh, wow. Before we go, I have to ask you about the sisterhood. So, this was an idea that came to you during lockdown. Tell me about uh, the sisterhood yes, and this project. So before I was telling you how we don't have a television, and so we read to each other. So, in the first lockdown, trying to stay fit, I'd worn this knee down to bone on bone by doing the walks because I, I live by the seaside in St. Leonard's on sea. So second lockdown, what do we do now? So I happened to say to Mark, my husband, who I discovered that Christmas was not only a great painter, but was a good writer because we had no money. I hadn't done any concerts, paid concerts during the whole, you know, COVID period. So normally I, you know, I have money put aside. I keep all of my a lot of my CD money aside to make the next album because I set up my own label in 2000 as I didn't fit into the the industry. I, you know, I was with Jive Records, I was with Virgin Records, then I was with Irma Records, but nobody would let me write the music that I write, which is the human story. And so I decided to set my own label up called Fallen Angel Records so I didn't have to answer to anybody. So I'm a one-person cottage industry. And it's it's hard work, but I love what I do and I still make a living. I don't I'm not rich, but I, I I'm I'm still doing it at 64, which a lot of my peers are not. Anyway, for Christmas present, we had no money to buy each other presents. So he wrote me a poem. It was just beautiful. And I remember reading it and thinking, this is a song but it needs more verses. So I went back to him and said, is there any way you could write some more verses? And that was the first thing we actually wrote together. Oh, this is, I've got tears in my eyes here in this story. Really, really, really beautiful. And then, so I said, why don't we do a project together just to keep us a bit sane? There are so many wonderful female singer-songwriters out there that have paved the way for someone like me that have made a difference to musical history, but because they're women, they're not necessarily in the history books. You know, we might know their songs, but we don't know how hard they fought. There was a huge amount we could have called upon, but I got it down because in the end it was my choice. I got it down to 10 singers. And in my head, they are passing the torch from one to the other. Oh, like a relay. Yeah. So it starts with Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, Miriam McCaber, Aretha Franklin, Janis Joplin, Joni Mitchell, Ricky Lee Jones, Annie Lennox and Kate Bush, all totally different, all with very different journeys and all who've not necessarily influenced me, but I have advised my career, my path. So we did a lot of research because I bought off Amazon biographies, autobiographies. We listened to YouTube. We listened to any album that we had. And we absolutely absorbed ourselves in their life. I read the stories to Mark and then we would make notes and go, oh, that, that's really interesting. And then we wrote these songs backwards and forwards on our two sofas. We, we sit opposite each other and we really respectfully, there's no gossip in there. It's like really trying to get the essence of these women and who they were and how brave they were. And so we got these 10 really good lyrical songs. And then Tony Remy in the first lockdown 
had learned, because he had a lot of time on his hands, he learned how to move from garage band to logic recording on his computer. So he got that down to a fine art, perfect for when we were allowed to have movement. He came down and stayed. He sat on Mark's sofa. He had his MIDI keyboard, his guitar and his laptop with Logic on. I got the mic that I bought during lockdown because I was doing lockdown concerts at home with my son because he'd moved home. So I sat on my sofa with my mic. My brother, because um, you had to be three metres apart, was behind a chair filming us. And I said to Tony, right, here's the challenge. I'm going to read you each song so you understand the kind of rhythm of it. But I think we should write each song in the genre of the artist that it's about. So, for instance, the Joni Mitchell sounds like a Joni Mitchell song, but it's about her. Nice. And it that then became such a wonderful musical challenge. It called on everything that he and I had ever learnt or listened to. So we wrote them very quickly because we're incredibly in tune with each other. You know, we just know what each other's going to do. And we got down these really good demos. In fact, the demos were good enough to release and they were, but we couldn't because I hadn't got headphones myself. He got headphones. And so there was all this seepage because I live in a converted shop on the corner of a street and you've got the dustbin men, <laughs> everything in the background. So we seagulls. Well, seagulls would be quite nice probably. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Mainly the dustbin men. <laughs> we live opposite the bins and they are cleared twice a day. Okay. So anyway, you couldn't use that. So I thought, right, well, this is a really good project and I've got to find a way of funding this, but I've got no money. So I just thought big and I thought, right, what I do, because I always live dangerously. I've never got enough money, but I always manage to do these things. I rely on goodwill and good karma. So I thought, well, this project has come out of, of utter respect for these women. And in my head, Kate Bush passes. I'm one year younger than her. She passes the torch to me and I pass it on. That's where I placed myself with as I was writing this. So I booked a studio and the studio I booked, I think it, it might have been where Cliff Richard used to do all of his songs. It's in a, It was a religious recording studio <laughs> in Eastbourne, and it was called Echo Zoo, and not far from me. So I booked it, and then I thought, right, how the hell do I make the money for this? So I thought, well, gosh, I've never... People always asking me to teach them how to sing. How can I teach them? I've never learned. I just know what I know, but I don't know how to pass it on. So I thought, well, there must be a lot of people out there that want to do something with me, but... I was a bit nervous. So I put up on Facebook and it literally only took one hour and I was was ready to take it down thinking this isn't going to work. But I put up this thing saying, do any singers want to come and be part of a weekend masterclass where I teach them three part harmonies to uh, backing vocals to four of my songs that they will come and sing at Ronnie Scott's with me. It sold out in an hour. It raised the money for those four days in the studio. We Airbnb our spare room. That money paid for the musicians, the the basic band. I didn't have enough time in the studio because it were literally four days I could afford to. I did the guide vote, guide lead, but not enough to, you know, these songs warranted proper time. So just on that last day when I was kind of on my knees with tiredness, I got a, an email from Guy Chambers asking me if I'd come and do some vocals, a session. Oh, I can't turn that down because financially I needed it. So I got on the train, I went there and I was very tired and I'm thinking, God, he's going to find out that I don't read music and I, he's going to ask something of me I can't do. Oh my gosh. So I had to be very honest with him and tell him I didn't read. And it was to do all of them 
the vocals for David Walliams' musical about an old people's home. So I think it had been Robbie Williams and me doing these voices for <laughs> Julie Waters. And it was all about farting and wetting the car seat and very funny, very, very funny. So I delivered. And at the end of the day, I said, you don't know me, but this is the project that I've been doing. Is there any way that rather than paying me, you would let me have your studio for a day? And he said, yes. So I managed to get my lead voices done. And then I needed another day because I used these wonderful backing vocalists, Gina Michelle and Beverly Skeet, and um, as well as myself, because I'd written really good backing vocal parts for these songs. And they all required, you know, real precision. And these two are the best. So I asked him once again, and I, I owe him a session. But managed to, and that, and the whole thing's been done on bartering with Tony. We did songwriting weekends in our home. People stayed in our spare room. Mark, my husband, cooked. He did art weekends where people came down to learn how to paint, to draw. He took each of those singers we advertised. Did they want a, a, an, an ink, a pen and ink drawing? You know, he's, he's a fine artist of any of these singers that raised some money for another part. In the end, I ran out of money. But I had to finish mixing. So we turned our front room into the mixing studio. And I literally finished the mixing the night before I went and had my knee replacement. <laughs> and then I had to find the money for the mastering. And I knew I wanted to master it in Paris because this is a really good mastering studio there. So I had to find that money. And I did that by, um, we sold quite a few of Mark's paintings. I started to advertise them and we got the money for that. And the Eurostar is not cheap and, and, you know, and having to stay Airbnb for a night. It's honestly, this project has had the most fantastic karma. And then the best part was I set up a GoFundMe last year, wanting to raise money to pay for the Soweto Gospel Choir because Mark and I had written this whole part in Koza, uh, which was her language. And I'd used the Soweto Gospel Choir before on another album. But I thought, I've never been to South Africa. I had, I spent an extra thousand pounds with a lawyer to make sure I wasn't sold in South Africa because I was sold, signed to Jive Records, which was a South African label because it was the time of apartheid and I was a member of Artists Against Apartheid. But of course, I'd never been. And I thought, you know, at that point, I was about to be 63. And I thought, I'm never going to go unless I actually go now. So I used that money for Rod, uh, Tony and myself to go to Johannesburg. But by the time the money came through, there was just enough money for the flights. By the time the money came through, the flights had doubled. I didn't know how the hell we were going to get there. So, and I'd already promised them, you know. And so what I did was I managed to track down Dali Tambo, who for a while had been a boyfriend of mine. And Dali, his father was Oliver Tambo, who was the head of the ANC the whole time that that Nelson Mandela was in, was in prison. And I hadn't seen him since 1987. And obviously, it was the period of Artists Against Apartheid that I'd really known him. And we became friends after our relationship. I tracked him down and, you know, on the phone, I had an open phone call with him and his wife. And I said, this is what we're doing. Do you know anyone? If we did a private concert in, in their home, would put us up for a few nights. See, we were prepared to sleep on floors, anything to be able to get this done. And he said, you're my guests. So we were collected at Tambo Airport by Dali Tambo's driver. And we were staying with the Tambos in the heart of the ANC. <laughs> and we recorded Miriam's song on the day she would have turned 90. And then what was amazing was we knew we wanted to go to Cape Town because Mervyn Africa, who'd been, he played with Duda Pakwana, but he was a wonderful South African piano player who used to live in Brixton. And I used to write with him. And he got me to be a safe house for 
black South African musicians that were in exile. So I had many coming to stay with me because I had a piano. I was in a hard to let housing association flat in Brixton, but so many people passed through and stayed for a night or came to rehearse there. And I, because he played with Hugh Masekela and with Miriam McCaber, I wanted him to be on it. He was in his mid-70s at this point. And he was very excited that I'd been asked, you know, and we wanted him to be in, in the, the interview and in the documentary because we're trying to write a documentary as well. So I thought, right, we've got to get this done, but how do I find the money for that? So I remembered I'd got this Italian fan who'd once asked me to come and play in Cape Town. It never happened, but I tracked down her email and I said, what was your connection with Cape Town? And she said, oh, well, my husband and I had, had a, a hotel here, but we've just sold it. Then we're on safari. And she said, why? And I explained. I said, we need cheap accommodation. She said, leave it with me. Next day she rung up. She said, well, we sold it to Italian friends and they would love to have you there very cheaply. But, you know, because of course, because of COVID, there'd been almost nobody staying there. I said, that's great. But I don't even have that money. Do you think Tony and I could do a pop-up concert? I've never been there. They don't know who I am. Tony had been with Annie Lennox, you know, so he, he knew the place. But, you know, we were broke. We had no money to do this. And she said, leave it with me. She had no connection with the music business. Okay. Next day she gets back. She says, I found a venue. They're delighted. So what PA do you need? What do you want us to hire? How much do we need to cover this trip? My brother wanted to stay an extra week to film and to take photographs. So we added it all up. I told her she sold the gig out to the Italian community. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) And we had the most amazing and it paid for everything. So do you see what wonderful karma is attached to this? Wow, place? the heart and soul and the energy and the, the story of getting this thing made is incredible. And, and where we're at now is I, my husband's designed the cover and we want to use a photograph of each of these amazing singers. But I don't want to do it under the radar. I want to pay for those photographs. And, it, you know, it's going to cost a couple of thousand pounds. So I had to think, right, how do I raise that money? Because we're at that stage now. So I've booked another masterclass, which happens on the 27th of May. I've got 20 singers coming coming from even from Italy to be part of this. And they will come and sing with me at Ronnie Scott's on the 14th of June. That raises the money for that. And then on and on. But I've been talking to several theatres in London. I've done a treatment to write it as a theatre music show because it's my life story with these, with the sisterhood, these sisters who have guided me on my way. So we're Halfway through realizing that it's a TV documentary and it's a radio documentary. It's, it's so many things and it's all about the imp- women empowering women. Wow. I mean, this is a podcast on its own talking just about that one project, but that sounds incredible. And in terms of when we'll get to hear the music side of things, what, well, what are your thoughts? I'm hoping October. I'm okay. hoping October, but, um, I can't rely on that because obviously I, I have to f- I'm finding all the time the next bit of money I'm gonna lie in my bed and think right what can I ask of people now where I'm giving something back but we can get the money for that next stage and I have to think out of the box but it, it's it's great because it, it's really stretching me honestly this is such a fascinating insight because you know the industry has changed so much for so many new music artists that are coming into you know, what what was happening back in the day with um, you know if you think about how Paul got signed to Polydor and whatever music industry is so different now. Yeah. What you're doing is kind of what so many music artists would have to do now, just starting off, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And here I am at 64 having to do it. Yeah. I've chosen to do that. That's what I, I mean. I, I suppose that's the difference. You've chosen, but, but for them, that's the reality that's, of just normal. Real, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, my son is a singer-songwriter, you know, and, I, and a lot of my friends have children who are, you know, in their 20s now who are singer-songwriters. It's so hard for them. They don't have the college circuit that I had to learn my craft. You know, I did the, um, to try and get my equity card. This is before I fell into singing or knew that I was going to be a singer. To get my equity card, it was in the days where, you know, you didn't have your own printer or photocopier and um, you had to send off uh, a certain amount of engagements to be able to get your card and for me to continue as an actress that's what I had to do so in those days if you spoke between songs that was deemed cabaret so you could do it that way I sent off those documents so many times and they were lost and of course I never copied them and so uh, you know it took me years to get them but part of me trying to get those contracts was I sung in the Northern clubs. I was the artist that went on when somebody had won on bingo. I then came on. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's another way I learned my trade. And, you know, people hadn't come to see me. I sung in so many wine bars and pubs where they didn't come to see me. And you learn, you learn so much about, you know, how to engage an audience, how to make them even notice you. And I've told my son, just get out there and play wherever you can. Doesn't matter they haven't come to see you. Just use that experience because it is so important as to how you engage. Because it's all about the cycle. It's about telling a story to an audience. You have to be a great singer, but you have to have the intention and you have to mean it. You know, it doesn't have to be clever, but if you're honest and you're real, you make the connection. And that comes about by putting yourself in these dangerous situations where it's not comfortable. This has been so lovely chatting with you. Um, thank you so much for your time. I have two final questions for you before you go, okay? Yep. So first one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council, or solo. What would you go with? Probably Wildwood. Ah, okay. But there are so many that that's very hard. There are, there are too many. You Do Something To Me is... Oh, I love that too. And probably because at the time he wrote it wrote it for me to sing first, Leaves Around the Door. You know, I had such a connection with that beautiful piece of literature that is in a beautiful melody. But those beautiful lyrics, the perfect love story. So maybe Leaves Around the Door. Now, look, the purpose of this podcast is to talk to lovely people like yourself, hear your stories, your memories, your connections with Paul and all that. But the reason I created the podcast, it was my one big regret giving up my radio career. I was a radio presenter for ages. I gave up being a radio presenter for, for a lot of the reasons that you're talking about, like the money and trying to make this work and all that kind of thing. Not being able to play the music I wanted on the radio that I loved and all that stuff, right? But but I had one big regret from giving that up, and that was I never got to interview Paul Weller. So I created a podcast. We're now into episode 140 plus. Um, <laughs> I created this podcast to make this happen so I can interview Paul Weller. If it happens, what should I ask him? What would you like to know? Um, what I would like to ask him is, when am I going to do a duet with him? Ah, oh, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Because I would absolutely love I don't even mind doing backing vocals for him. But I would love to be in a studio when he's recording and creating. I'd like to see his process and be part of it. That nice. would be such a high. Nice. Great question. Love that. And also, I suppose the other thing to chuck in is, was that the first kiss on the bus during Red Wedge? Yeah, of course. We need to know that too. <laughs> uh, Sarah J. Morris, thank you so much. I'll put all the details in the show notes for all these things that we talked about. And we'll keep an eye on the sisterhood and whatever comes next. But thank, thank you so much you. for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. 
My thanks once again to Sarah J. Morris for joining me on the podcast. What a fantastic guest. So many incredible stories as well. Do check out the show notes for this podcast as well. You'll find links to the music that we talked about, that well-attuned leaves around the door on there, details of that latest album, Let the Music Play, and the sisterhood as well. All the details on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And do make sure you continue to spread the word, share this episode of the podcast on your social media channels. It all helps us to find new listeners to the show. And whilst you're on my website, if you fancy it, you can buy yourself some official merchandise, the official Paul Weller Fan Podcast mug, as recently seen with Mr. Weller, and a cup of tea of his at Black Barn Studio. Yeah, it was there in all the pictures and all that. Loved it. You can find that in my store. Or if you fancy it, buy a virtual coffee as well. We have listeners doing that all the time. Thank you so much for your continued support. Hello to a new listener. This is Sonia Harley. Hello, Sonia. Bought us a coffee. Says, hey, Dan, I just discovered this. I love it. Such funny, honest, and often touching accounts from really interesting people. Fantastic stories. Impossible to pick a favorite. I'm kind of hopeful it will be a long time before you interview Paul. Thank you, Sonia. Hello to Dan. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Georgia Moroso. Hi, Georgia. Ian Hamilton, thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Stephen McAllenon. Hello, sir. Hi, Grant. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee as well. Thank you, Duncan, Ian, and Sean Wilson. Hello, Sean. Thanks also to you, Rich Gill. Much appreciated. Get involved. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. And we got some cracking guests coming up, okay? A little bit of a teaser for you. Still to come, you can hear our live podcast show. Yes, we recorded it. We have Smiler Anderson on the very next episode. Also, no relation, Peter Anderson, the Style Council photographer, on the podcast very soon. Plus, in amongst it, Bev Bevan will be here. Yes, the drummer from The Move, ELO, played on Wake Up The Nation as well. So many incredible guests coming up. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and more. You can also tweet the show at WellerFanPod on Twitter or get involved Facebook, Instagram. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.